Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, welcome to New Books Network. I'm Tiabdut Sulongkomer, the host of this channel. Today I'm here with Dr. Sepandi Chatterjee to talk about her book, Choral Voices, Ethnographic Imagination of Sound and Sacrality. This book is about how choral voices are an extension of the voices of specific communities. And I believe that this conversation will be a very interesting one. And this is what I am going to explore with the author herself here. So let me straight away go to the author herself. So Dr. Chatterjee, can you tell us something about yourself? Yeah. Thank you, Temsu. Sorry, Temsu. I'm hoping that I got your name correct the second time. I am... Um, very happy to have this conversation because, um, especially because, uh, I have tried to, uh, do a work on, uh, Shillong and Goa, uh, two regions that I do not belong to. And, uh, and I am currently a senior academic fellow at the National Law School and, um, doing some research and teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting. So, I mean, every book um, has a journey um, towards uh, of the person who is writing that book and the ideas that has been brought out. So, uh, can you tell us about the journey towards uh, coming to this very book and also the topic and, you know, that journey of uh, coming to this kind of topic and, you know, having to work on this topic? Yeah. Right. Um, it's true that um, as a sociology or anthropology student, it's not very usual to uh, choose a topic like uh, sound or an anthropology of sound, which was something that came to me, frankly, uh, due to my curiosity during master's when I I had encountered this book by Max Weber called uh, Rational and Social Foundations of Music. And uh, it was just introduced as, um, you know, as a part of our text, um, as a part of a lecture by one of the professors in Calcutta. And I thought that it would be interesting to look at uh, sociological ideas explored through music and sound. Now, during that time, I was invested in a different um, idea of music world, which was to understand why Western classical music, or uh, especially classical guitarists, um, how they are so uh, important in Kolkata. I used to learn classical guitar myself and without having any kind of native uh, local uh, icons or superstars to look up to, it was quite common to, uh, you know, take up these courses, attend these uh, recitals. But soon enough, as I got into uh, this sort of research, I realized how music education itself is heavily tied to this colonial way of um, having standardized music examination patterns like the ABRSM, like the Trinity College. And now there are different other music boards and some of them are trying to uh, do away with this kind of uh, association with the British uh, habitus, which is something I talk about in an Enfield paper that I had written at uh, one point of time. Now coming to uh, PhD, um, and uh, which basically shaped uh, this book, um, I was actually uh, contemplating starting uh, my doctoral thesis at the uh, Delhi School of Economics, uh, Department of Sociology, and I was in conversation with Professor Uma Tataji, who became my supervisor, and she had told me that if you are interested, um, have you thought about or have you heard of this uh, sh- uh, group from Shillong called the Shillong Chamber Choir? Quite frankly, at that point of time, I hadn't uh, seen the reality TV show. Um, and and uh, therein, I mean, the first uh, people I heard about was actually, uh, I actually heard uh, Toshan, uh, Toshan Borg sing Nong Bet, uh, singing an opera and rendition. And then that got me into finding out about, okay, he knows about Nimnara, uh, Aruha Choir, and um, and this whole fabric of how choral music as a phenomena 
can be, you know, studied. And uh, because of my prior ENSIL interest in, you know, understanding music pedagogy and music performance across Calcutta, Bombay and Goa, I was already uh, sort of sensitized to uh, look at what's happening in Goa. And um, as a backdrop to how I came to Goa as well, uh, my ENSIL supervisor, Lakshmi Subramanian, um, also had told me that uh, there is great potential to continue working uh, on Goa and see what's happening there. Because, uh, you know, I had uh, gone there as a part of, I was also part of a German music education program called the Sur Sangam, which was looking at teaching or uh, teaching uh, Western classical music in a particular way. And... Uh, also coming up with this understanding of how different music teachers from different schools across Calcutta, Bombay, Goa, uh, Bangalore, how can they think of a collective? Well, that project took a different turn, of course. But what that got me into was this, uh, you know, pool of people who are invested in making music and also not just instrumental Western classical music, which is how I got into this process. But vocal music, vocalization, sacred music, and choral music, which was something that I stumbled upon, literally. And uh, then that, that made me very curious about how devotion and music shape cultural communication. And I guess that's how I jumped into this project. Yeah, uh, quite interesting. Now, in your thesis, uh, I mean, in your book, actually, you talk about the uh, Shillong context and the Goa context, right? Now, obviously, you have talked about how, you know, you came to know about these two um, uh, places and the music at age to eat uh, through your personal, um, you know, personal journey. But also, uh, I also want to go specifically into this aspect where why Shillong and Goa, right? I think uh, that's a question that I want to put up. Yeah. Yes, um Right. And and that is also a question I get asked quite often. Why do I choose only these two uh, to talk about something like choral voices? And uh, quite frankly, uh, although, yes, uh, partly it is because of my prior, uh, you know, in, uh, engagement with Goa that I chose to work with Goa. But the other reason, uh, there is some kind of... Uh, not exact similarity, but how they are under, you know, outside the cartographical imagination of the mainstream. If I must say, how Goa is looked upon as a tourist site or uh, as a tourism industry where people go and make music and they do know that Goans are part of the, uh, you know, the, the arrangers of the Bollywood industry going back to 1930s and how the Goan Catholic community uh, the Christian community were largely part of that music industries uh, that shaped a uh, large part of Bollywood and harmonization at one point of time. In case of Shillong, uh, you know, the same thing, uh, when we think of Northeast, we think of it Northeast as a whole, you know, and, and we do not really try to separate out what is happening in each state or each region. And um, another thing is that, again, it's, uh, identified with militarization and violence and, and any kind of um, extra state power or, or that kind of uh, idea and impression. But there is so much more. And, and in case of Shillong only, uh, when you have, uh, you know, a uh, soulmate uh, talking about blues and, and uh, hitting the world charts much before, say, even we hear about Shilong Chamber Choir. So, but, but then uh, the sad part is that uh, we tend to look at certain regions with certain lenses and we do not go beyond what are the other cultural attributes and possibilities of knowing those people, of uh, knowing that place and the sociality around it. So I guess that is how I wanted to use the lens of sound to see how different kind of um, musical possibilities emerge, even within the continuum of the sacred world. 
Yeah, I think um, there's a very um, interesting justification to that. And I think that also brings out actually um, certain different perspective to looking at uh, peoples and communities. I think that is something which is very interesting. Now, coming to the um, your discussion in the chapters, I think initially, I believe you discuss about the aspect of indigeneity and choral music. And I think this is something which I particularly want to, I can go into, right? Because um, you discuss about how, uh, you know, indigenous in the context of choral imagination and I think this is where you use the concept or the idea of sonic interculturality so um, can you uh, you know elaborate more on the aspect of what really indigenous here is and then the choral music and how actually these two comes together right can you explain this one more yeah yes yes sure um thank you for your um questions so the thing is that um Indigeneity is usually, when we think about indigeneity, it is about um, a certain kind of um, identity assertion or a certain kind of geopolitical um, ambition that is uh, marking out certain, uh, uh, you know, certain community or certain social attribute. But what happens in... Um, and in fact, I do talk about those different kinds of indigeneity in the chapter, how, um, you know, um, Kaka talks about uh, indigeneity. And it's not just, it's about how, you know, how it's not about who are the original inhabitants, but it's more about are we having access to certain kind of resources like coal, land, and all of that. And then um, you also have uh, this um, is it just enough to have a political sort of category of indigenous and what does it do after that? But my questions are understanding indigenacy in the context of the world of sound, or if I borrow Stephen Fell's understanding of an acoustimology or the habitat of sound through which I can understand or which I can read a community. And in that, uh, by that I mean that what are really the local and the vernacular ways of expressing oneself and 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 that uh, that does not mean that it that it is entirely devoid of a template which is drawing from certain kind of a uh, that has a certain universal presence like say choral music which which in this case i'm talking about um and yes it came as a part of uh, Christianity, it came um, as a way of civilizing, civilizing, uh, or as a way of, um, you know, uh, spreading uh, the language of God or uh, or conversion. But what happens when we uh, when we become when we adopt that religion and it becomes part of our uh, own culture? And, and we vernacularize it and we intersperse it with our motives, our kind of symbols. And then what happens to the repertoire, both in terms of uh, interpreting devotion as well as interpreting it through um, some utterances towards God, like, um, you know, and I'm saying that strictly first in the realm of church. But what this book also does is to explore indigeneity uh, as found in choral repertoire and how it uh, adopts very distinct regional styles and signatures, you know, in Goa and Shillong because of very complicated um, colonial imperial encounters and histories that shaped their life worlds. Like in this case, in Goa, it was the Portuguese and in Shillong, it was the Welsh Calvinist ethic that shaped uh, the larger premise of how uh, choir music came. And it also talks about different denominations, whereas I mostly talk to the Catholic Goan. In Shillong, I uh, talk to Presbyterian um, and also other denominations like uh, Baptist, Church of God, um um catholic and there is other uh, you know um strands of christianity and then 
as you rightly pointed out, what then sonic culturality, which is something, uh, which is in a way an intellectual hook or an image category that emerges from my field, from my um, interactions with my interlocutor, that it is not trying to say uh, that there is a disjuncture between what is supposed to be a universal template and what is supposed to be a particularistic um, um, interpretation of that uh, particular genre. Rather, it is an ongoing dialogue that is expanding on the notion of what is local, what is vernacular, and what is cosmopolitan. Um, to briefly sum it up then, what is, uh, you know, what is this indigeneity that I'm talking about? It is to trace um, um, what emerges as cosmopolitan for the different uh, regions that I'm studying. For example, we see uh, Shillong embracing a medley kind of uh, genre to express itself and medley itself becomes a genre because uh, they go on to use uh, Bollywood sounds and uh, in some cases jazz sounds um, as we see in case of Aroha, how, uh, how they are talking about uh, saying that, you know, just because it's a sacred music doesn't mean that it has to be sung in the style of a hymn, but it can be sung across different genres, which can be classical across genres in the sense that there are um, classic uh, representations of particular genres that they take up and uh, distribute it to form a certain kind of repertoire. In case of Goa, what is happening, it is more about um, holding on to a certain Iberian, uh, that is Portuguese, uh, Spanish, uh, nostalgia, that arc, and also, uh, you know, interspersing it with the local uh, more dominance, if I might say, folk musical traditions like the Mandur. Um, and how they can, and also certain motet, uh, which were sung and composed during certain parts. So it is more like um, a certain kind of a sacred repertoire uh, that is emerging. And if, the, if these are the repertoires, who are the people uh, that are interacted with and who are the places, where are the places and the institutions that I go to, also determine why and how certain sounds take these kind of, um, you know, roots. Yeah, um, as you have, um, you know, elaborated on the indigeneity aspect of it and then the aspect of choral music imagination and also as you specifically talk on the, the Shalong and the Koa context, I, I want to kind of like um, go a little bit deeper into it one by one, right? And um, at first, I want to talk about the the Shillong context, where you talk about the Shillong Jambal Choir and the Aroha Choir, and also as as you have mentioned, you talk about medley. And I think, obviously, adopting certain form or certain way of uh, you know um, singing and you know in terms of this choral music imagine uh, musical imagination, I think. Um, the Shillong Jambal Choir also became a national sensation, right? Because of that uh, adoption of certain way of, you know, of singing. Uh, singing. So I think uh, w when we look at this, I think there's a certain motive to it. There's a certain context that it comes through. And also, obviously, it has that uh, cultural trajectory of, uh, you know, what has come about and, you know, how it has been formed and how it has been actually received by people in different ways. So uh, can you actually, you know... Uh, zoom in into the Shillong Kamper Goyer and then the middle aspect of it and then you know the different cultural aspect that comes into it can you explore that little bit yeah right right um also uh Shillong Chamber Choir was the only choir who had read my PhD proposal and then decided to meet me so uh and uh with them my ethnographic um engagement had been more of a green room ethnography as I call it because Mm, they said that, um, you know, they invited me to their home studio uh, one, one day and told me that we are very <clears throat> curious about what you're doing. But we also wanted to look at what other choirs in Shillong are doing. And they gave me a list of other choirs 
<laughs> to go and explore and also then come back to them. And I told them that <coughs> that I would like more kind of time with them. And they said that that's all right. So what they gave me as an option was to, they did allow me to come and attend their uh, shows and I could uh, observe, I could uh, be a part of the audience. I was a fan, I am a fan of Shilongshi Bafoya myself. So that was another reason as to why I was interested in the medleys of Shilongshi Bafoya. I became a fan uh, once I started working. Now, Bollywood, exactly. They said, Neil Longkingri, unfortunately, we lost him uh, in 2021. When we had met Bart, he said that it just incidentally happened that Bollywood became their chosen style of medley because they were originally um, homeschooled and Neil Longkingri was a pianist, concert pianist in London wanted to come back and do something with with voice in 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 Shillong and that's how he thought of coming up with the school and then he tried to um actually have um classical concert but then a reality tv show came about and that changed the entire perspective of how Shillong itself looked at the possibility of exploring newness with choral music and and everybody found this um entirely different it's not like harmony was like i mentioned even before harmony has been part of bollywood as early as 1913 like many other sounds that had traveled because of um interaction with the west but what they did was they were suddenly what i call uh bollywood broadway in the sense they gave us something of a um, little little kind of theatrical um, dance move and a storytelling kind of an experience alongside a certain kind of medley. So it was not just an oral affair, but it was also an oral visual element that added to this entire, uh, you know, sensation, as you call it, of Shalom Chamber Fire, how they come about, the way they dress, and in some cases they also dressed in the traditional Khasi attire, uh, you know, with uh, their Jensen and uh, uh, and how they would otherwise also uh, talk of or, or bring about a certain kind of a show uh, showmanship kind of perspective with with that entire uh, thing of producing or giving us a certain kind of music. Now. Um, I was also asked this question somewhere else, so I, I would like to say that somebody said that it, it's different from K-pop, you know, somebody had told me. And I, I, I was actually very interested to get that kind of a, uh, comparison because, you know, they are also becoming an alternative um, uh, genre, uh, which is uh, having its own kind of, um, uh, yeah, it, its own kind of purpose, its own kind of popularity. Um, but I would like to say, and when I also say Bollywood, Broadway, people say that uh, what about the drama? What about, uh, it's it's not over the top, it's subtle. What is special about Shalom Chibafoyer, broad, Bollywood, Broadway is also it, it, it's subtle because I also think that it comes from the place because, it, it, I mean, people from Shalom, they're not, uh, they, they are shy. And, and I I mean, this is something I have noticed about the community. So it, it takes, for them, what they are doing is actually going above and beyond their normal, you know, the way they come across. So it's, uh, and, and they don't, uh, you know, they do not really listen to Bollywood songs. They have to learn the language, they have to listen to the songs or the, any other languages that they sing in. Other thing about Shilong Chebapwari is that they wanted to showcase Khasi and other Less uh, sung languages within the canon of, uh, you know, choral repertoire because otherwise it's always the European languages like French, German, and Italian, which is uh, considered to be the legitimate way of establishing a repertoire. So what they are doing is they are also in their uh, homecoming Christmas album, they 
uh, interspersed with Aramaic and um, Khasi, uh, Farsi, lesser known languages who are also celebrating Christmas and saying that it's not Christmas is not just for Europe or for the West, but what about the languages that uh, also celebrate Christmas and what does it say about it? So these kind of, um, you know, uh, ideas come from the musicians themselves. So they are very aware of what they are doing and how they are going to sing it. Yeah. Yeah, I think the way you contextualize uh, Shilong Champakoyer, the, the, you know, the Shilong context is something uh, quite interesting. Yeah, that, that is something quite interesting. Now, coming to the second second aspect is where you talk about the Koa context. And I think, um, interestingly, I think you also bring out the aspect of the institutional aspect, right? The seminary aspect of how music has been practiced and used and taught. I think this is an important. I believe this is uh, an important aspect in trying to understand music, and I this is where the aspect of piety uh, and then the worship protocol comes into. And this is where I think in the in the Quran context you talk about the the you know the um, imperialistic history and the cultural process coming together. And I think this is something which I am also really interested to understand and know in the Quran context where you bring the seminary, the worship protocols, and then this uh, two historical aspect of, uh, you know, imperialistic history and cultural uh, process comes together. So can you, uh, you know, tell us something about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. True. I mean, there were two reasons as to why I chose to look at uh, the seminary. One was because I did not want it to be only uh, a book about wires, but also understanding how do we train ourselves? Like you rightly pointed out, where does this training or <clears throat> how does it come about? And I didn't want to look at church because church is definitely one of the most direct ways of uh, locating the fires. But <clears throat> but what happens is that how does a priest who actually becomes uh, the leaders of uh, religious worship or the pastors or the fathers according to different denominations what uh, what meaning does music really say uh, you know play so that led me uh, to uh, one of the oldest seminaries in Asia Russia seminary in Goa and um, also because uh, to understand, because you know, uh, Goa with its Portuguese um, uh, tradition uh, and the imperialistic history, um, they had parochial schools which taught them reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, and you you learn about it in in all sorts of initial impression that you know about Goa and how Christianity sort of became a part of their cultural process. What the seminary did was because after the, uh, you know, um, Goa was no longer a part of Portuguese sovereignty uh, after 1961. But even after, um, you know, once the, once the British started coming in all over India, they also started to impact the education system little by little in Goa. So that's how the parochial schools sort of went away. And then... Where does the music uh, stay then? That became uh, seminaries where it is a formation where priests learn how to um, know better um, ways of managing devotion and offering uh, religious services to God. Uh, that's where, you know, this uh, musical training then uh, went on. And uh, it was a Jesuit uh, um in Goa, who sort of also worked immensely in safeguarding Kunkini as a language, as a language of worship, as a language of hymn. And also, um, it is still interesting to see how church uh, masses are conducted in Konkani. Of course, you will find uh, people speaking in Konkani in village markets as well. But uh, in upper class, uh, upper caste, I mean, although nobody talks about caste, but you know what I'm talking about is that it's, um, there are 
even and even through my interactions, what I understood was there was these shadow uh, sort of elements of how conversion history also talks about caste, where a region coming like Lutoli, Kurtodin, certain areas where you know that uh, Saraswat Brahmins, converts of Saraswat Brahmins came from. Or those kind of conversations also came up. Of course, it's no longer there. But as a part of... So what I mean is that, um, you know, in, in seminaries, we also find um, how language and how um, how sort of uh, musical training, not just in voice, in Gregorian chant, because those were a part of the Italian uh, Catholic uh, Roman Catholic sort of imagination at that point of time, um, but also in learning instruments like violin, piano, um, uh, guitar, and many of the I, I talk talk about it through different seminarians and the biographies and the life worlds of different kind of uh, seminarians. Some of them who became parish priest or um, secretary to archbishop or somebody, some people who had their own groups of music and alternative choirs, like the Kota family choir, which was basically doing very different kind of uh, musical sound, which was to go back to the nostalgic uh, pop um, and, uh, you know, renditions of Brazilian, uh, Portuguese and Spanish repertoire. And again, the Goan kind of vernacular so what we see happening here is that um, they also form a different kind of repertoire, a Goan sacred repertoire, Goan uh, vernacular uh, folk repertoire. And uh, all this is not, um, is actually is the starting point we see in many cases is the seminary. And that is why the seminary becomes uh, an interesting uh, way to look at it. Um, in fact, I um, also uh, went to another seminary, which I do not write about, Pilar Seminary, and they were very kind to allow me to uh, attend some of classes, some of the classes with them, uh, which was on actually inculturation. And they said that I might find that interesting. And I attended a few weeks of classes with the seminarians, and I was the only girl, of course, because it it's not a space for women. So, and uh, so I have been, and also in Russia, they have allowed me to sit through the Gregorian chant lesson. Um, so I think uh, I've been also very fortunate that I was allowed to, despite coming from a different religion, coming from an upper caste, upper class kind of um, affiliation, I was welcomed to explore the various aspects of uh, religion as well as the different kinds of sound. So, yes, upper class kind of um, affiliation. I was welcomed to explore the various aspects of uh, religion as well as the different kinds of sound. So, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, you have put it uh, really well. Uh, now, coming to the final aspect of, um, you know, the thing that you discuss in your book. You know, one of my colleagues here in the university, um, a PhD scholar, colleague, she works on rituals. And one of the aspects that she also kinds of work in is also the sounds or you know certain musics or certain sounds that is used uh, during uh, the ritualistic process right and she talks about how that form certain form of enchantment and all those aspects so that aspect of you know different forms of sound in the ritualistic process and in its enchantment I think that is an interesting um, aspect of actually sound itself and I think this is where you also talk about the geographical location and also at the same time one's perception of voice right in the geographical um, location itself I think this is I believe in terms of your work I think this is something uh, pertinent that you actually bring up so can you uh, you know explore or can you explain this one a uh, little bit more to us yeah so um, so one of my chapters like you rightly pointed out 
is about um, how uh, voice is also sort of rendering a certain kind of sociality, certain kind of place making. And um, is devotion the only element that is uh, keeping the choirs uh, together? And what is uh, what are the singers otherwise doing and where are they coming from? And through a different kind of narrative, we, we get to know that but some people it is uh, really lenient and um, and how they have gotten into this whole process of learning an instrument of singing as part of choir and it is part of their upbringing of being uh, Christian um, and going to churches and Sunday schools and that has shaped their life well. In some cases, they also talk about how choir becomes their first site of learning because uh, they learn to listen to others they learn how it is important to have uh, maintain a certain kind of singularity. Yet, uh, the the sense of the collective should be there. So nobody can uh, be more prominent than the other. There has to be a sense of balance, aroundedness, a certain kind of um, unitary or or ultimately a singular sound in the form of a collective rather than one boy. So th- those kind of learning also we see and um, and their aspiration to then become other kind of singers. Where somebody might have a shoe which is a singing, a singing style which is more raspy or which is more uh, jazzy. Then what do they do? Do they want to continue being strained into a soprano voice or do they take uh, the uh, trajectory of being an alto? And of course, like uh, for the for the um, let's just say for uh, for not complicating it much, I have mostly talked about four choirs in uh, four voices in a choir. But there can be more than four voices. There can be more harmonies uh, in imagining sort of uh, even choirs. But church choirs mostly look at four uh, four voices. And then so then what happens? With, um, because I have spoken to Mizos who have grown up in Shillong and, and uh, that they are supposed to have, they are considered naturally to be singers. This was something that I was told um, even when I started this project, why are you researching uh, Meghalaya, not Mizoram? Um, and, and then later I found out, okay, because that's supposed to be, because it's more ingrained later on I found in terms of rehearsal and in, in, in terms of ritual, as we pointed out, they they have twice a week rehearsal, which is which is, which is very normal. Everybody uh, who is part of a church choir, and, and then there are different levels of uh, pastoral choir or, or uh, standing choir as we go into, uh, you know, uh, the di- different denominations and how things happen in uh, Mizoram. But coming back to Shillong again and coming back to let's just say Goa and how the kind of placemaking and sociality happen, we also see how they they want to uh, talk about how they chanced upon the music. Most of the stories are about how they became a part of a certain choir, be it uh, the Shillong choir, be it, uh, you know, uh, the Suti Koran Ensemble and also this whole idea about um, certain uh, community sentiment, certain um, regional sort of upbringing and, and certain kind of um, urge to sing a certain kind of, in a certain kind of way. And and in fact, the materiality of sound, which is which we see in, in the sense of how the voice or the body of the voice uh, how the body holds uh, a certain kind of voice becomes very insisting because it also talks about the ranges and how people sort of uh, realize that it's more about how we use the head voice or how we uh, how we know that um, what style or what tone um, suits uh, a certain kind of uh, you know structure things like that and they also go on to uh, talk about instrumental uh, you know uh, if we balance instruments to talk about this kind of inhabiting or embodying 
a certain kind of voice, like the viola, like the violin, like the guitar, and sing so on and so forth. But what I'm trying to say is that um, what the chapter on voice and sociality also talks about is that what are the different sites where we see the choir and and the choral voices traveling to, not just within the church, but in auditoriums, in in uh, reality TV shows, in festivals, in um, in marking out certain kind of heritage ideas. And also sometimes in a rock band and uh, sometimes in a modern age opera uh, or a light opera version of a certain kind of thing. So we also see then that it is talking about um, um, the possibility of the voice having multiple meanings as well as rendering it, uh, rendering it to different kind of spaces, which itself talk about different kind of um, geography. Yeah, yeah, interesting. You know, I have a last question, and I think this question is uh, pertains to actually um, uh, what you're working and how it relates to other aspect of uh, music. And this is, I mean, in your work you talk about um, choral music, but also at the same time now. You that is where also the Christian tradition comes in, right? In your work, uh, but also in Christian tradition, obviously the aspect of choral music is also there. But when you look at the the churches which are interdenominational, obviously this uh, they do not really have this, uh, you know, choirs or whatever not, but they actually have praise and worship team, and you know their kind of percussion that they use, their kind of music, uh, everything is different. Uh, um, everything is different now. I think this is something which actually is becoming very much popular among the people, right? Um, in at least in the, this part of the country that I know of. So, so how how do you um under in in light of your work, how do you understand this different form of music that has been coming up in the you know the Christian churches that are there? Yeah, I mean f also for people who want to further go into this area of research, right? <laughs> right, right. No, this is a very interesting question because again, the question of um, the notion of what is indigenous and what is vernacular uh, comes, and uh, this kind of say gospel music or interdenominational music that you are talking about, that kind of training, you know, in Shillong, especially there is Martin Luther Christian University where you have um, a department to study indigenous music. And, and I talk about it in my book also, how uh, uh, the way that exam is held is actually to compose uh, using certain indigenous instruments like the kakatsing or uh, the duisara or, um, and use it and, and use the, the particular khasi uh, intonation uh, and the language to, to Sing and talk about certain kind of, um, you know, events, and uh, and that is that has got probably that has directly got nothing to do with uh, Christianity, and it's true. And I have also made this point about um, uh, at least how I saw it in Shillong, how there was because there's Christianity and there is uh, Niam Khasi, and and uh, so you do not. It's not like. Uh, there are not indigenous religions that or festivals like non and on are being also observed. Now, now the thing is, uh, it's a different matter when it comes to um, talking about a Khati culture. And in, in that case, it's not like we will only, uh, there is only an imagination of doing it in the Christian manner. But of course, it's also uh, borrowing different kinds of ideas from each other. And coming up with something um, maybe syncretic, maybe uh, something more um, uh, like a confluence, and and those kind of ideas also. So now um, to to respond to your question, like um, how is it uh, adding to it? I also feel that um, we are living in a neoliberal era, and um, everything now needs a label 
now needs a category. Everybody needs to be identified in a particular way. Even neoliberalism itself is a <laughs> concept that is trying to uh, say that everybody is uh, part of that neoliberal logic of uh, whatever market or 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 sort of politics or any anything that you say. So there's a danger. I, I find it a little uneasy to see like um, then. Are we, uh, is there a danger of uh, showcasing something of an exotic element? Or is it because, uh, and is it because that uh, that is preferred? Or is it to counter uh, the mainstream imagination? So those kind of um, things. Um, and, and why is there this whole idea about, say, mainstream and, uh, you know, outside the mainstream. Why do we have these kind of even uh, demarcations? And and it, it basically, you know, it, it's not just political uh, ideas, but then you see that even in a cultural world, then you get, uh, get to be uh, narrowed down into these kind of uh, categories. And, and is there a way to think beyond these categories? And how do we then think through it? What are the ways um, can we actually uh, try? And even though, like, I'm not really talking about big word like decolonization in that sense of the term, but what I'm trying to say is that um, there have been colonization and there have been certain kind of uh, uh, original ideas of customs, beliefs, and uh, we life world and beliefs systems and uh, cultural sensitization happen now uh, but what are we doing like my question is and i see that that what is the original it's very very uh, because whatever we try to do the next time it is an iteration of the first time but of course we need to have an original idea so we like to have categories and without categories, we may not be able to think of certain things. So like that way, we have interdenominational music, we have uh, Bollywood Broadway music or say uh, jazz music or Western classical music or choral music. But what I also try to talk about that, you know, actually all these are choral music or, or, or there are different kinds of foreign music or choral voices. And not just a homogeneous term of what is the current voice. Because in that sense, then we are not moving beyond anywhere from from where we started, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for a wonderful um, answer, yeah, to the question. So um, our conversation has come to an end, but I would like to ask you a few more questions. The first one is, you know, um, uh, what exactly are you working on or planning to work on in terms of your academic project, right? Uh, tell us something about that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, right now I am actually interested in looking at, um, because uh, because of my interest in um, religious music, I'm interested in looking at instruments, um, indigenous instruments um, like duitara, like cutting, um, and Look at why certain instruments are part of, say, sacred imagination and why some are part of folk. Is it to do with the limitation of, of tone, of timbre, of musical forms and ideas? Or is it also something to do with um, different kind of purposes and uh, cultural imaginations and socio-political real? Same way, I also want to look at how Bumot in Goa is uh, now uh, looking for a GI tag because uh, it has already been considered to be a state heritage instrument and they want to get the intangible UNESCO uh, status. But Gupot, which is not in port, um, and, and there are also, I am interested uh, with the questions of ecology and labor. Like, who are the people? Who are the instrument makers? Where are they coming from? Uh, do they sing or are they just making instruments in some um, far off places and um, certain villages or certain uh, rural areas? And then what does it talk about the social location of the instrument maker? 
And again, vis-a-vis this whole idea of what's sacred, what is non-secrets, and also ecology in the sense that are you using uh, wood? Are you using uh, monitor lizard, which is banned in Goa, for instance, and now you're using goat, uh, goat skin? What does it do to the sound? Um, why are we, uh, like in, in Mizoram, for example, uh, the big drum that they use, Kwang, uh, I think, uh, it's made of wood, and but that is the basic symbol of uh, the church. So what does it also talk about then tradition and, and, and the kind of um, yeah social expectation and all of it? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. So if anyone wants to, you know, interact with you further on your book, uh, how did they reach out to you? And when is the Indian edition coming out? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so the Indian edition is coming out on 18th May, which is uh, this month, and it is uh, reasonably bright. So I I will be very happy uh, if people pick it up and I get to hear from people what they think about it. Uh, my email ID is S-T-B-A-N-V-I-18C at gmail.com. It's my personal email ID. And yeah, so that's it. It was lovely chatting with you. And thank you for uh, such an engaging, uh, I mean, reading my work with uh, such precision. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you for such a wonderful conversation, actually. And I would also request the listeners to actually get a hold of the book and actually go through it. I think you will, uh, you know, you will be drawn into the immersed world of the choral voices and how it relates to the context, the places, history. And I think uh, this is, that is the journey that you are you will be going through when you read the book. So I would also urge listeners to really go through the book. Uh, thank you, Dr. Sipandi Chatterjee, for being here at New Books Network. Yeah. Bye-bye. Take care. Yeah. Thank you for having me.